turn to Psalm chapter 90. Psalm 90. Yeah, so thanks for kind of rolling with it today. Uh, we found out this morning that the air conditioner was out. So we had a little bit of time to plan and uh, stuff like that. So, yeah, thanks for being cool and uh, not literally cool, figuratively cool. Uh, I don't know that it's any uh, cooler in here than it would be in the sanctuary, to be honest with you, but whatever. Um, it's good to be back with you. I was a part of a group that was on a mission trip in South Africa for the last like two weeks, and so I was greatly looking forward to being back together with you, and of course, it would not be in the traditional sense, you know, it's just kind of how it goes, uh, but I'm excited about um, life <laughs> in general, and um, for those of you who have been on mission trips before, you know, you you kind of come back, it's kind of like going to camp, you kind of come back and there's like this renewed perspective, and um, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be able to teach tonight. This is a, a series of the summer where uh, other people are preaching, and so I'm kind of sandwiched in the middle, and uh, I'm really grateful for it. We're going to be in Psalm 90, which is uh, it's the only psalm attributed to Moses uh, in, the, in the book of Psalms. And because it is you know, written by him, and it's a... It's a prayer when you get into it. I mean, I know they kind of all are, but uh, this one is really specifically a prayer. This is probably one of the oldest recorded prayers that we have in our faith. And so uh, it's really just kind of a, uh, an amazing little treasure that we have right here. And so uh, I'm going to walk through this psalm in, in my favorite way to teach, which is just to like do a little bit at a time and just kind of talk about it. So there aren't any... Uh, you know, three, four, five points to make or anything like that. We're just going to kind of sit in this psalm and see what it has to say to us um, a little bit at a time. So let's look at the first two verses. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Here we, we see Moses b- begins this prayer uh, in the same way that Jesus taught us to pray, which is really um, exalting the Father and uh, really telling him who he is. You know, not that he forgot, but just that's starting off with that perspective of the massiveness of God. Um, we see in these verses, he's, he's, he's pointing out the eternal nature of God. You know, he says, from everlasting to everlasting. Um, and so we can think in, in terms of, t- of a timeline, everlasting, you know, going both ways. He's always existed. He will always exist. There's this um, forever presence that God has with us. Um, and it's interesting if you look at verse 1 and he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You know, a dwelling place, like that's where you, that's where you live. That's where you abide. Uh, you don't dwell in a hotel you know, you just stay in a hotel. You dwell in your house or your apartment or your dorm or whatever it is that, that you may be. Um, it's a place where you put down roots. And so Moses begins this prayer by saying, God, you have been the, you have been the dwelling place of your people for all generations, from everlasting to everlasting. And, and even before the mountains were formed, before all of the creation we look at around us was even made, he was there. And so this, this idea that whether it's past, present, or future, God is, is with his people 
He's in his people, and he's at work among his people. That's a very, very important concept for us to, to grab onto in order to understand where this psalm is going. This eternal, limitless nature of God, and he, he and his people have this connection that uh, will never, ever end. Okay, so that's, that's where he begins. Um, and that points us to this, this idea that like theology folks will talk about the eminence and transcendence of God. His nearness to us, his, his eminence, but yet he transcends everything. He's greater than everything. He's bigger than everything. That both of those things exist. You'd, you don't normally have both of them. You, you would have one or the other. You know? So the sun in the sky, is, it's, it's just massive, right? But, in, but there's no nearness that's there. You know, um, and then even with each other, we're we're very near to each other, but we don't really transcend a whole lot. You know, we're just kind of us. Um, that God has this this amazing mixture of things that should contradict, but they actually fit together perfectly. That that's who He is. So He starts off in the first two verses, and that's where He's talking about God is massive and He's eternal and He's always with His people forever. And then He makes a turn and talks about humanity. So look at verse three. You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with the flood, they're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, even in the evening, it, uh, I'm sorry, in the evening it fades and withers. So there's this contrast that's, that, that he's talking about. He says, God, you are, you are eternal, you are massive, you are good, you are with your people. And then man's life on earth is, is fleeting. It's, it's, it's but a moment, you know. So God looks at a thousand years, as he says right here. It's like nothing to the Lord. And yet we would, I mean, we can't even make it a hundred years, really, you know. That, our, that we are very finite. We are very limited, and that our time on this earth is, it's, it's, it's like a vapor. Um, the, the actual like, words, like in, um, in Ecclesiastes, when, when, when Solomon is talking about life being a vapor, it's like, a, you know, pretend for a second that it's cold in here. So cold that you can see your breath, you know? Remember that? Isn't that refreshing? Uh, but you know how that is? And I remember as a kid, I didn't understand what was happening. I just thought it was so awesome when it was cold enough that you could, like, see your breath. But you just saw it for like a second, and then it goes away. That's the actual like, language that's being used to describe how our lives on earth are. They're a vapor. They're here, and then they're gone. Um, that that we, are, we are renewed, and then we fade away, and that this is like life for us as humans. That all of us eventually will pass away. Like it says in verse 3, we will return to dust. We were made out of dust. We will return to dust. That, that life for us, is temporary. So God stands eternal, but we are a vapor. So Moses is not saying that our lives here are insignificant. He's saying that because they are so short, they have to be significant. That we don't have this eternity to make a difference. We have our time here on the earth. Now, of course, in Christ we live forever. Okay, so I'm not discounting that in any sort of way. But for Moses, he's looking at the number of years that we live on this earth. And he says, because it's so short, because it's such a vapor, it has to really matter for something. 
This is Moses' version of John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. This is really, this is where Piper stole it from. So don't waste your time. You don't have, you don't have time to waste. It's too important. Look at, look at verse 7. It says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Okay. So, you know, like sometimes you're reading through the Psalms and you're like, oh, that's really beautiful, that's really beautiful. And then you come to something and you're like, there's some, there's some little backstory there that we need. This is where the backstory and knowing that it, Moses is writing it is very important. When he, when he talks about being brought to an end by the anger of God and by the wrath of God, and uh, I love verse 8 because it's painful. It says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Here's this eternal God. Here are these vapor, vapors of life on earth. And Moses is lamenting the sins of the nation and the sins of himself. He's saying our lives are but a vapor and, and we have wasted them. You know, We don't need to get too hung up in the poetic picture being painted of wrath and anger. You know, He's saying, man, we've, we've blown it. And we've dealt with the, with the heartache of our God having to deal with the sinful nature of his people who have rebelled against him. He's looking at this vapor of a life as a nation and saying, I hate the fact that we missed it sometimes. That things we thought were being done in secret, you have placed them before us and the light of your presence illuminates those things and, and that's, that's where we've been. This is... This is confession. This is uh, repentance. This is heartbreaking stuff that he's talking about. It's both personal and it's corporate. Um, he's looking back, and we know we know the storyline, right? When they they come out of Egypt, they're they're uh, have this miraculous rescue. They get out into the desert, and they, they 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 get nervous. They get fearful. They build they build an idol to worship instead of God, and they complain about not having enough food and not having enough water and not having air conditioning and, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, they, they get out. That wasn't a shot. That was just, just to make sure you're still with me. Um, the, the, they get out there and they're complaining and they're rebelling and they're wanting to go back and their faith is, is struggling so much. And Moses now looking back on all that is he, it's tearing him up that those precious years on the earth, part of them was wasted in sin and just stupidity. Uh, so he's making that confession. Um, look, at, look at verse 9. For all our days, um, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Um, I think that, uh, well, this made me remember this quote that I have come across, uh, usually attributed to John Wayne, but it actually comes from a book called The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Anybody ever read that? Me either. Okay. If everybody was like, yeah, nodding, I'd be like, yeah, okay. And I would not admit that I hadn't read it because 
you shouldn't do that. But I'll admit, I've never read The Friends of Eddie Coyle. There's a character in the book that says this. He said, this life's hard, but it's harder if you're stupid. You ever seen that? I've seen it like on like a meme or something attributed to John Wayne. He didn't really say it. Um, so now you know where the quote came from. You can sound smart. And we're like, that's from the, uh, the Friends of Eddie Coyle by George Higgins. Um, so if that quote is, this life's hard, but it's harder if you're stupid, maybe this is Moses' way of saying, this life is hard, and it's harder if you're sinful. We, we know, you know, like you can look back on your life, all the adults in this room can look back on your life, and you can look at decisions, uh, you can look at like just entire stretches of time, where now, looking back on it, you're just, you put your head in your hands, you're like, I cannot believe I wasted those years like that, you know. Immersed in lies, immersed in just rebellion, you know, whatever it may look like. Even, even if it's like, I didn't even know Jesus then, and you're still looking back on it, being like, man, if I could have that back. And I think that Moses is speaking something that we've all found to be true, that it really is harder when we're wasting our life in things that don't matter. In Hebrews 12, it, uh, it, in the Hall of Faith you know, chapter, in Moses' section, it says that... Um, it says that he made a decision to identify himself with the people of God rather than to pursue the fleeting pleasures of sin. The same as Moses. And so I think perhaps he's trying to you know, say something. He's trying to pray something. Um, maybe God made sure that this, of all the things that Moses wrote down, that this one made it into the Psalter because maybe we're supposed to realize that um, life is too important and too short to get stuck in these patterns of sin and stupidity. So, in light of all those things, uh, verse 12, he finally gets around to the, the, the asking part. You know, We all think that prayer is like, let me just ask God for stuff. But Moses lays all this groundwork because prayer is a relationship. You know? So this is this dialogue, and he's like, God, you're, you are eternal and amazing, our lives here are fleeting, and, and we have spent them frivolously sometimes. So, so his prayer is verse 12. It says, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's the verse that's on the front of the folders that we gave out for summer community groups. Teach us to number our days, to, to order our days, so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That is not a request for... for God to tell Moses how many days he has until he dies. What he's saying is, because our days are so limited, we, would you help us to like, order them and structure them and number them so that no more time is wasted? Help us not waste our few days on this earth and to help us to make them count for things that are eternal. And I love that he's, he, it's a request. It's would you teach us this? Moses is not sitting here being like, I mean, I know what to do, I know what to do, I know what to do. I'll get it right next time. Here's Moses, who's probably up in years by this point, is saying, would you, would you teach us? Teach us corporately. Teach me to number my days so that my heart grows wise with the things that are yours. You know, our lives are filled with so much stuff, you know, so distracting. Things that, like, things that take us away from what's most important. Filled with really great, significant things, and then some insignificant things. And there's so much vying for our attention. 
that I think his prayer is one that we should probably step into more often. Because it's just too much. It's too important. The stakes are too high. Uh, so, so here's my personal wrestling with this. Uh, a few weeks ago, I don't know if you guys are big on Twitter. I, I, you know, it's a new thing. I don't know if you've heard of it. So Twitter uh, has all these ridiculous accounts that you can follow. And one of them is called Uberfax. And if you follow Uberfax, dude puts up like a thousand a day. And some of them are absolutely impossible to be true. And if you go in and read the comments, people just rip him apart because it's like this guy. But he put one up that I have uh, a while back. It really got my attention. And I've seen, if the exact numbers are not right, I've seen this like similar statistics in, in other places. And I think it's reliable. This is what it said. North Korea has almost 3 million people at risk of starvation. While Kim Jong-un spent $500 million on yachts, parties, and food in 2012. So you got millions about to starve, and the leader, the dear leader of the country is spending all this money on parties. And my first thought was like, man, how, how selfish of this guy, you know? And then very quickly, the Lord was like, hmm, what does that sound like, you know? I was like, I, I don't know. Like, I literally like, sensed him say that. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. So I started thinking about it. What does it look like to have all this money and to neglect all these starving people? So then that thought led me, led me to another article that I had read. I was like, maybe this is what God's talking about. Um, let me read this, this to you. I read this uh, a couple months ago. It's about tithing. So if you hate when preachers talk about tithing, go get some fruit or something. Uh, <laughs> listen to this. This, will, this should trouble us. Because Christians are giving at uh, a 2.5% per capita uh, when it comes to tithing. 2.5%. I'm not sure if this is America or this is global. Okay, So let's say global just to make ourselves feel a little bit better. All right. 2.5% uh, is what, is, that's how much of people's income, that's the average income, uh, average percentage of income people are giving. So 10% is the tithe. They're giving at 2.5 on average. During the Great Depression, they gave at 3.3%. So we're giving, percentage-wise, less than during the Great Depression. And it says today, 33 to 50% of church members um, give nothing to their churches. Okay? So uh, then this, uh, it's this research group went on to say this. Um, if we were to ha- able to have people increase their giving from 2.5% to 10%, an additional $165 billion would flow into the kingdom. $165 billion. It would be boosted. And so they went through, just for kicks, and said, what could you do with $165 billion? Uh, 25 billion would relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases within five years. 12 billion would eliminate illiteracy in five years. 15 billion would solve the world's water and sanitation issues. Um, One billion dollars would fully fund the Great Commission, and that still will leave you 100 to 110 billion dollars left over. So, the the Christians on the planet could take care of clean water, food, illiteracy, 
plant churches and still have all this like leftover money to do to repair the AC, right? All this that's there. 165 billion. So I went from North Korean dictator who is keeping all the money and letting people starve, and then I jumped to American church hoarding 165 billion dollars while the gospel struggles to get into other parts of the world. Uh, where all you'd have to do is say, hey, hey, we can fix your water problem. And then they would start paying attention to what you have to say. It's like, Jesus sent us to solve your water problem. And then you saw their water problem. They were like, okay, tell me, tell me more about Jesus who sent you. So I go from North Korea to the hoarding of $165 billion in the American church into my own life. Which I'm not sure of those three, which is the most painful. Because I realized how much time I waste, you know? Like how many people are in our city that just do not know? So I spent two weeks abroad, and there was like a 50-person 50, 50 team. We split into seven teams, and every team was in a different part of the city that's full of refugees from, from countries all throughout Africa. People have run from civil war and poverty and all this kind of stuff. They fled to South Africa believing that that's where like all your dreams can come true. They get there and they realize, no, it's just as bad here. But then they're kind of stuck. And now there's all these Christian churches that are ministering and sharing the gospel with these people where you couldn't get into their country. So I worked all week with Somalian refugees. Somalia is the statistically the fifth most persecuted nation on the planet. Um, you can't get into there. If, if a Somalian converts from Islam, they're instantly killed. You can't, you can't reach them. So what do you have to do? You wait for them to run out of the country and to run into South Africa and run where churches can freely do their stuff. And who's there waiting for them? South African Christians, yes. But missionaries who have left the, their entire life here and gone over there because they felt God saying, it's more important that you be here uh, sharing the gospel with Muslims than it is for you to like have a nice, comfortable life where you are. So naturally, I'm sitting there and I'm just like, everybody goes on every mission trip at some point, feels called the global missions while you're there. You know, like you go through in your head, how quickly could I sell all my stuff and this and this and this and uh, you know, how would I explain it to my parents? And the, you know, you kind of go through that, and God very quickly pulls you back in. He's like, okay, let the emotions kind of take a, take a break for a second. And he reminds us that, that we're not all called to that. We are all called to be obedient. So the urgency that I was feeling to bring the gospel to Somalian refugees should just transfer to be just as passionate about bringing it to the people that I interact with every day who may be just as clueless as those Somalian refugees are. So then I come home, and I'm like, i got to preach this week. What am I going to preach on? And God brings me to Psalm 90, and he's like, see how Moses is basically saying, please help us not waste our lives? So we can't be like Kim Jong-un, and we can't be like the American church, and we, we cannot, as far as money goes, and we just cannot sit around and waste our time building these pretty lives that have no eternal connection to them at all. We can't live as if, as if eternity isn't real, and as if the new earth isn't a real thing, and as if at some point we're all going to pass away and the vapor will come to an end, we have, to, we have to live as though those things are real and then work backwards, let it reprioritize our lives. And so if obedience 
means living in Baton Rouge and being faithful with the relationships he's given you, then you do that. And if obedience means you move to uh, Mayfair in Johannesburg and you work with Somalian refugees, then that's what you do. And whatever it looks like, that obedience that's there, there has to be this sense of urgency because we believe that the future is real and because we believe that God is huge and that we are very temporary on this earth and that every second is supposed to count. So do you disciple your kids? Yes. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Yes. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Yes. All of that matters. And whatever Jesus calls you to do, we say yes to him. Because we don't have eternity on this earth in this life. And so it has to count. Absolutely has to count. So Moses, I'm about to, I'm about to, about to finish, I promise. Um, verse 13, look what he says. It says, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. And for as many years as we have seen evil. So God has seemed distant to them. And Moses is making a plea that, he, that God restore them. He is confident in the character of his God. He, he understands what, what the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, when it says, Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. He understands that the past is the past. And we should lament that and we should learn from that. But this is new. Going forward is new that you have some amount of time in front of you to make things count for eternity. And so if you've asked God to teach you to order your days so that every one of them counts, he's banking on the character of God to come and restore them. And then look at verse 16. If, if you're in a place and you feel like, man, I've wasted so much time, I don't want to waste another second, look at this beautiful conclusion of the prayer. It says, Let your work be shown to your servants. And your glorious power to their children. All the parents in the room should take a deep breath with that one. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to, your, to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That we come before the Lord and we say, I, I'm, I'm ready I'm ready for more. I'm sorry I've wasted time. I'm, I'm ready. Will you show yourself strong? Will you establish the work of our hands? That you would pray that for yourself, that you would pray that for your family, that you would pray that for your community group, you would pray that for our congregation, that everything that we do would be done in light of eternity. Like with that in full view, it reorders the present and the days ahead. Um. I don't, this, you may not at all be in that place where you're like, yeah, I've kind of wasted some time. You might be like going full steam ahead, and I hope so. But if you aren't, I hope that this is hopeful to know that you're not alone in having some regrets, but you're also not alone in the hope that Jesus extends to us. Uh, I, I said this a lot on, on our trip, or I feel like I said it a lot. I may have just thought it a lot. Uh, but we are, we're a part of this new family that we're adopted into his family. And when you get adopted into his family, you are all about the business of the family. Like, that's the focus. And the business of our family is the glory of our Father through the redemption of all people, restoring everyone to their original state of creation before sin busted it up. And so for all the people around us and all around the planet that don't know, 
that's our that's our driving force. And so I'm thankful for this psalm and for Moses, uh, his humility in asking God to teach him how to make his days count. And so maybe that's a good challenge for us. So I want to pray for us. We're going to sing one song uh, just to kind of, because that's what we do, you know, maybe a corporate prayer and request. And, uh, and then I have something to say, and then we're going we're gonna to be done. All right, so join me as we pray. I want you to stand up. Might be good. And maybe just, uh, maybe we can just bring ourselves to that same place that Moses was, just just for a moment. That the, you know, the big the big uh, ideas from the psalm are that God is eternal and massive and good, and our lives are are but a vapor, which makes our time here very very significant. So because of because those two things fit together, we just need to ask God, would you help us learn how to order and number our days that we don't waste another moment? God, I'm thankful for the the power of the cross that has taken care of, of all the things we lament from our past and the time that we've wasted. That your son is has died and covered those things and that none of that stuff is held against us. And so you aren't sitting there shaking your head or disappointed with us or whatever. You're excited about where we are and where we're going. God, I pray that you would just help us help us to, to transfer this into our lives. And even though all of us are in a different place, different places and different things, you're big enough to help contextualize it and personalize it for us. Because none of us who are Christian, none of us want to waste our time here. You tell us that, that Moses chose the reproach of Christ over all the riches of Egypt. I pray that you would help us to follow suit whatever following you in obedience looks like, we see that as as of greater wealth than anything we could find anywhere else. That we would value your well done. You tell us in that verse that he was looking to the reward. He was looking to your face smiling and saying well done. For calling him good and faithful. That's our desire as well. So as we sing this song, maybe this kind of just helps put some words to uh, maybe some of the stuff that's stirring up in us. uh, We love you.